This is the Novice No Longer podcast, episode number 33, with Amir Rajan of A Dark Room. Welcome to the Novice No Longer podcast, where top app developers help you build and market your apps. I'm Dan Berg, former tech journalist turned entrepreneur and app developer. Each week, I talk to the creators of some of the top apps in the App Store to unlock the secrets of app success. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Novice No Longer podcast. I am your host, Dan Berg, and I am thrilled about today's episode. It's a little bit different than anything else I've done so far because up until this point, I've only interviewed app developers who have made utilities. But today is different. Today, I interviewed the creator of an indie game, and it's one of the best games I've ever played. And objectively speaking, it's just absolutely amazing. It's really different than anything else that exists in the App Store. If you haven't looked at the title yet and you haven't looked at the show notes on my website yet, what the game is, is it's called A Dark Room. And it's very unassuming. You you open it up, it, it's almost text-based, but the amazing thing is just it grows in expanse. And you start off in a room, a dark room, and then the game slowly, slowly grows beyond what you ever thought possible. And I'm not going to go too much into it because I don't want to give it away. And I highly suggest if you haven't played the game yet, stop this podcast and go play it. And I don't actually usually tell you to like stop listening to go do something else because there's probably a chance that you won't come back. But please download this game, A Dark Room is 99 cents, and play it and then come back here. And the, the way that it grows reminds me of one of my favorite movies. That movie is Adaptation. And if you haven't seen it, it kind of starts small. It starts kind of basic, although entertaining, and it grows. There reaches a certain point, and again, I don't want to give it away here, but there's a certain point in the movie where you think that it's coming to the end and a conclusion, and it just keeps going. And it keeps going in such an explosive way that it just blows your mind. And that's exactly the kind of experience that I had while playing A Dark Room. And so I was thrilled to have the developer on the show. Now, A Dark Room is actually originally a web-based game by a gentleman called or named Michael Townsend. And Amir played the game, discovered it, and just knew that it had to be on mobile. It had to be on iOS. So he contacted the original developer, they worked out a deal, and then he jumped right in. He had never made an iOS app before. He actually did most of the coding in Ruby Motion, which he talks about really interesting to not be in Objective-C and not be in Xcode, which is Apple's uh, development environment. So he talks about that, and then he goes on to share what it was like to kind of first start promoting the app and having nobody paying attention and slowly and surely getting that attention, blowing up in the UK, coming to the US and just really hitting the top of the charts and what that experience was like. And it's a really fascinating story and I know you guys are going to like it. But before we jump into that, I want to thank you guys for listening and on that note, share a review that one of you has left on iTunes. And this is Entrepreneurs in tech need a Charlie Rose, and Dan sounds great. Confidence boosters are few and far between, and listening to informative and entertaining conversations that get at the basics is great. That is from somebody named Mikely22. And I don't even know how to say thank you to this. Being compared to Charlie Rose is something that I never thought would happen. And I don't know if I necessarily think that I'm actually up there yet, but it's 
absolutely flattering, and it's so great to hear you guys enjoying this as well. And if you do enjoy it, please let other people know. Share it on iTunes. Leave a review. Tell your friends. Really helps me out, and I'm trying to really grow this thing. So, all right, with all that done, all that said, I'm going to jump right into this interview because it is amazing, and Amir is one of the most intelligent developers that I've talked to, and he knows what he's doing, and he's learned from it, and he shares it all with you. So, enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Dan with Novice No Longer, and I am here with Amir, and he is the developer of the iOS version of an amazing, amazing game. It's called A Dark Room, and as I said in the intro, I'm going to repeat it again here. If you have not finished the game, stop listening right now and go play it. I think right now it's 99 cents, so it's like nothing, but even if it was $1.99, we're going to talk about pricing a little bit, um, hopefully, And but yeah. Literally, go get that game, play it, and then continue listening. But um, Amir, first of all, thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dan. Yeah, so I, I kind of want to kick off. Uh, a Dark Room is a really inter- it's a different game. Um, it, it's kind of text-based, kind of not. It, it doesn't have the visuals that people have come to expect with quote-unquote games. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what drew you to the game. three months before I actually came across the web version of the game. And, you know, as you mentioned before, I'm the developer of the iOS version, so it actually went viral on the web as just like a free web game um, by, by a developer named Michael, uh, Michael Townsend. And so, you know, I came across this game, and during my sabbatical, I actually, like, just... I, remo- I sold everything that I owned, pretty much. So I had basically... Um, I had my laptop, a pair of drumsticks, a desk... Um, you know, and, and just very few, very few worldly possessions. Um, my wife was actually really okay with that because she got a lot of closet space and a lot of space in the house or in the apartment. So she really loved that aspect of it. But what drew me to a dark room was the uh, minimalistic presentation of the game itself. And it kind of reflected where I really was in that part of my life. And, um, I think that that's what immediately clicked with me. And from there, uh, you know, I just emailed Michael and said, hey, I'm on a sabbatical. I want to learn iOS development. Um, let me let me port this game over to iOS and, uh, you know, share this share this with the world because it's it's really great. And I guess that's kind of what what drew me to it, to it was that this minimalist presentation just out of the box. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned how you wanted to get into objective C what was your programming background before this uh, well actually I graduated from from college with a computer science software engineering degree so I had quite a bit of like development experience in general uh, primarily with uh, C sharp and Ruby so picking up I, I knew general development concepts just didn't really get into objective C so I ended up uh, using this as a means to learn objective C I found out about few days in that I didn't like Objective-C at all. Do you still and, not like it? Uh, I still don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you gave it a fair shot, that's for sure. I, I gave it a fair shot. Uh, the interesting thing was that I actually ended up using a framework called Ruby Motion. So what they do is basically they take Ruby and, com- uh, and compile it down to something that runs on iOS. So that worked out really well for me because I, I, I had, didn't have any problems with the, uh, Ruby, the language itself. So I was able to develop the entire game using Ruby Motion and then uh, deploy it to the App Store. So that worked out really well for me. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really interesting. And I had a couple of questions about that. Just 
talking about frameworks, uh, going back to the more basics of this, basically when you're programming, what different languages will have is uh, an IDE or an integrated development environment. For Apple, it's uh, an application called Xcode. And usually, you don't have to, but Apple recommends it and most people build iOS apps, Mac apps, everything in Xcode. And you you did something different. You did the, what is it, Ruby? Ruby Motion. Ruby Motion, which is a, a different kind of program. Now, why... Why did you choose to do that, and what was your experience like doing that? So the re- the really interesting thing was uh, primarily because of uh, one of the two motivations. One was Xcode itself, and then the language. So Xcode, surprisingly enough, the integrated development environment that you speak of, um, there's some really good ones out there, and then and then there's some really bad ones. Mm-hmm. So coming from uh, coming from my professional career, I did a lot of my development on .NET and uh, on Windows. And there's a there's a integrated development environment for uh, .NET or Microsoft products called Visual Studio, and that is a phenomenal uh, development environment. So going to Xcode after after looking at Visual Studio was just night and day with regards to you know how how usable it was. So Xcode just wasn't up to par with what I was used to. So when it came to development environments, Xcode just didn't make me feel good about it. Now, the interesting thing is with Ruby, um, their, their, idiom, their idioms or how they approach development, it's all about, I want a simple development environment and I want a command line centric way of developing and uh, building applications. So with Ruby Motion, I, I immediately fell in love with that aspect of Ruby Motion. They were like, use whatever text editor you want, Use you know if you want to use Vim if you want to use Sublime Text these are all text editors mm-hmm. um, or very lightweight integrate uh, IDEs and use whatever text editor you want and then use the command line to build your application which takes me to the second part is that Objective C itself it's an you can learn to like it I mean it's a good language but having the option of doing it in Ruby Motion or uh, Xamarin also has a product that allows you to write C sharp. Um, which is which is a different language. When you have options such as C Sharp or Ruby or um, even PhoneGap allows for JavaScript, you uh, you doing it in Objective C seems less of a less of a um, benefit given given the other options you have. So you know I I, I sometimes hear oh that you're taking such a risk with doing something that's not based off of Apple, but. They all compile down to native uh, native uh, applications, and Apple wants your app in the App Store. So at the end of the day, they're not going to care what you really wrote it in, just as long as you know you get something there for them. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. I, I think my biggest concern would be is that Xcode is doing something that I don't even realize to compile it or adding something onto the final version that. I just won't be able to figure out, and that'll add on just hours and hours of just searching and time wasted when I could have just done it the other way. Did you did you not have that concern? Yeah, there there is that risk at times. Um, at, the the good thing was with regards to Ruby Motion, it's been vetted as a as a product. I don't think if like Ruby Motion was you know just right off, uh, if it was like a brand new development environment and hadn't been tested out, I probably wouldn't have went with it. But it had been in the industry for you know at least a couple of years, so I feel a little bit more comfortable going going with the application, especially because they did do the upgrade from you know iOS six iOS five to iOS six, and then iOS six to iOS seven. All that they handled. Uh, all that without without uh, much much issues on their end, so it is a risk you take. But um, you know, it, it's just it comes out to well, do I spend do I spend twice as long and twice as much code doing it in Objective C, 
or do I get to market faster doing it in you know a language that I'm familiar with or a paradigm that is more close to how I think philosophically about development and that's what I decided to do yeah that that's wonderful doing something a little bit different um so I want to talk, go back to the game, A Dark mm-hmm. Room, and when you first discovered it, what was your first experience playing it? Because I think, now, I, I want to mention, too, for those of you, if you're still listening, you've beat the game, there's bonuses in there. There's audio commentary, which I found amazing, amazing. But you mentioned that your very first time playing it, when you started coding the game, you hadn't even finished the game. You hadn't got to the, the dusty path. What was your experience like that first time that you played it? Well, okay, so uh, I guess a, a little bit of TMI, you know, I w- everyone uh, everyone does it. Uh, I don't care what anyone says, but you know, you'll you'll browse your phone while you're kind of in the bathroom, right? So <laughs> mm-hmm. I came across, uh, you know, I came across the game on Twitter, and I, you know, played it on my on my phone, and I was playing it on my phone. I didn't have a keyboard at that point in time, so I was already feeling the pains of, you know, this is not mobile compa- uh, compatible. But I immediately fall, fell in love with like the initial portions of the game, with you know the uh, the um, city man management and just the small reveals that happened you know as you played you start gathering wood and suddenly something else comes up and you're like oh what's this new shiny thing that i can play around with and i you know i immediately fell in love with that so even uh, just just knowing that much about the game that's where that's when i said let me let me develop this and start uh, start coding it and the the funny thing is is that um i was like okay this is going to be an easy project you know it doesn't look that difficult a couple of buttons here and there and um uh, that's one of the reasons why i immediately uh, uh, emailed Michael was was I was like okay I can do buttons you know it's not too complex of a game and um, I can port this to iOS even though I don't have any any iOS experience so it was only only after uh, the initial city management that I actually go onto the dusty path and say wow this is really complex at this point but at then by then I was too far in to to back away from from the project and I just learned and and moved on with it yeah I'm sure that having that come at you as a surprise your objective c skills just even got or your ruby like the skills in your programming in the new format just increased even more than what you were first expecting yeah and you know and that's another interesting just to briefly touch on is that even though i'm developing in ruby i can look at uh, because because the underlying apis are the same regardless of whether you use ruby xamarin or you know c sharp or objective c i knew the ios i came on the other end knowing the ios apis so i can write you know objective c if i wanted to and and the apis are still the same across the board so there is there is definitely you know retention with regard. I, I'm not just I didn't just pick up a skill that is only applicable to doing Ruby Motion applications. I can build iOS applications and Objective C if I really wanted to. Interesting. Now, with uh, programming this game, um, the original uh, A Dark Room was open sourced by Michael, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of it gave you the code to kind of look at to write your code. How is that experience for you versus writing an application from scratch? So that was, so there's a, you know, a couple of interesting things that uh, aspects about that. Um, so as far as the open source, it, it was definitely open source. But when I spoke to Michael, uh, spe- specifically because this could potentially have been a premium application, and when I mean by premium, it's an application that we actually you actually pay for with regards to, as opposed to it just being free. Um, I you know I requested a exclusive license to quote unquote sell the application independent of the open source license that he had online, just to make sure that it was like you know legitimate with regards to 
royalties or any profits that I that I received from it. So you know, it, it was good because he was the original creator of the game, and uh, he gave me a snapshot of, of his code base. And I use that as reference to actually build out the Ruby Motion implementation. So the the interesting thing is that uh, from a, from the game mechanic itself, I wasn't able to leverage any of the code that he actually implemented because his his implementation was so specific to a web browser. So I just had to kind of reference reference the game itself uh, and how it behaved as if I'm you know as a black box implementation, and only when I really didn't understand you know what part what specific things in the game were happening or if I wanted to make sure that I covered all the content would only then would I actually look at the code and see exactly what's going on there. So um, that was kind of that that was how I basically had to approach the game. I just looked at, okay, here's, here's the buttons. Let me get this working and treat it as a black box, uh, black box implementation. Now, the interesting thing that, uh, as you mentioned, it was open source. So there really wasn't any obligation for me to actually reach out to Michael and ask him, um, if I could port this game to iOS, I could have just readily done that and charged for it. And then, you know, um, kept all the profits for myself if I wanted to do that. But from a, you know, ethical standpoint or a moral standpoint, I felt that that wasn't the, the right thing to do and that the original creator should get, uh, you should definitely get a piece of that pie. Um, another thing with the development aspect of it was that the web version of the game was actually an idle, idle game. The premise being that you just keep it open in your browser and you can do other work and then come back to it. Um, the real problem for that from, from a mobile standpoint was that people don't want to sit around and look at, you know, timers, tick up or uh, they, they just don't want to wait around. So I had a significantly, I had to do a lot of pacing changes to make sure it was, it was approachable on a mo- mobile medium. So a lot of my work went into uh, making sure that that game translated well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's something that's really interesting to me is kind of seeing uh, games in different formats and especially something like this where it's so obvious the points that need to be changed. Like you said, the idle game is something that can be browser-based. You play it and then you go and you do work in another tab. You go back to it and you have tons more wood or whatever it is for that specific idle game. Whereas for the iPhone, you can't really do that. You don't want it to just run in the background because if somebody doesn't play it for months, like a, it, it's a different set of challenges. And I think you mentioned too that you spent a lot of time tweaking the very beginning of the game and the timing of that. What was that experience like? Oh, it was, uh, that experience was extremely painful. Um, uh, the main reason was that I'm so used to the game. I know exactly what's going to happen and what's going to come up. So I had to let other people play the game that never played the web version. And um, it's, it's really difficult uh, because you have to filter their feedback with regards to what they liked about the game, what they didn't like. So, uh, you know, I, w- I would hand it over to one of my friends um, or, you know, one of my wife's friends or, or what have you. And I'd like literally watch their eyes and see exactly when they started getting bored or or um, exactly when they lost interest. And this was a half-baked implementation. You know, it wasn't the full-fledged game that you that everyone else experienced it was just a silly progress bar in the like top left hand corner it was it looked absolutely ugly uh, relative to what it looks like right now i guess but um but that was that was extremely painful uh, especially because after i received their response i couldn't let them play the game again because 
they already knew what was going to happen. So I had to find new blood every time, uh, every time I needed to do a tweak of pacing or to see when, you know, someone, someone got bored. But the number one feedback that I always got was, oh, it needs pictures or it needs sounds or it needs, you know, some kind of graphics. And that was something that I continually had to just say, you know, thank you for that feedback. But in my mind, I knew I would never add that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because it's just so against what you would expect from an iOS game. Mm-hmm. And you need to know what uh, feedback to listen to. Yes. If somebody is getting bored because they're waiting for a minute and 45 seconds before anything happens versus they're like, oh, this needs pictures, when obviously that's not the vision. It's the different exactly. feedback you should listen to. Right. So, and, and the other thing is that uh, some people uh, try to be polite. Right. So, you know, even though they don't like the game, they might say, oh, yeah, it was really fun. So I had a I had to really look at when, uh, you know, when they decided that uh, this game is boring or I'm only now doing it for for the sake of for the sake of me as opposed to really enjoying the game. So that was extremely painful. And I had to be very strategic with regards to when I showed it and uh, made sure to incorporate that feedback before getting the next person. Mm hmm. Now, one of the things I found most compelling, um, and I only discovered this after, or I I was in the middle of the game when I was contacting you to do this interview and talk, because when I first contacted you, I hadn't finished it, um, because I was playing it on my iPad mini, and then I installed iOS 8, the early version, and there was a problem with iCloud and drama, drama, but I lost it, and I was like, this is amazing, though, I want to talk to you, and that's when I found your development log, and you're there there's been so many different developers that I've talked to that have blogged about their experience or shared it and it's just enriched it so much or enriched their experience and their learning so much so what inspired you to keep a development log with this so the good thing was uh, I guess I was before before a darkroom um I was a speaker and I did blog quite a bit uh, even even before the game came out, so it was kind of something I was used to doing. Um, I'm a big proponent of open source software, also, so transparency and just interacting with the end user like that is something that I think is important and valuable. So those those two things uh, put together, you know, decided forced me to well think about. It. I was like, hey, let's do a development log. Um, I didn't initially start on it, but what ended up happening was um, about uh, around the December time frame, uh, I actually got a tweet from, uh, I created a, you know, iOS handle for the game. Everyone creates their handle for their iOS game, of course, right? So I created an iOS handle and um, I actually received a, a mention on on Twitter, uh, oh, sorry, Twitter handle. And I received a mention on Twitter from, from someone that was playing the game. And um, they basically said, uh, hey, I'm having a lot of difficulty playing this game. And, you know, I talked to them, and it turned out that they were blind. They were actually using the voiceover capabilities on the device. And, uh, you know, I felt bad because I didn't – I was ignorant of blind gamers. Of course they exist, but, you know, I was really ignorant of that. And the first thing I ended up doing was writing about um, the development process of developing an app that was compatible with the voiceover capabilities on iOS. So I wrote that blog entry, and then it got a lot of traction, uh, which was which was great. And then that's what inspired me to, hey, let me do the entire development log and, and share that with everyone too. So it was just you know almost by by chance that I said, hey, this might actually end up being valuable to other people. 
Mm, that, that's awesome. And I was actually going to bring up the accessibility thing because I think that that's so important. And again, it's something that not many people think about. And I always tell people too, in terms of like building websites or doing anything that they're doing, one thing that I always tell them to do is make the alt tag for images Always fill in what the image is because it'll help you out with SEO. It helps you out with everything. But for visually impaired browsers, it tells you what the image is. And it's just so important that you create experiences that are accessible for everybody. And that it's amazing, especially with something like this. It, I, I think it's fantastic that you're able to implement that. Yeah, and it was surprisingly easy. Um, I think uh, a lot of developers were are really hesitant in adding, you know, oh, I don't want to do voiceover because it's really hard. And it's like, no, it really isn't. You know, there's, it's just, it, you're almost 80% there just by building an app on iOS. So it just takes a little bit more to make it, you know, make it accessible. You know, it's the right thing to do also. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with that, I ended up doing that, uh, doing the entire development log. Um, there are parts, there's quite a few parts of it that are just fairly personal with regards to, you know, how I was feeling about everything. And, um, and, you know, eventually I just started, Hey, let me post my numbers also, because anywhere I go, everyone's so secretive with regards to what they're earning in the app store. Like it's, uh, I I don't know, like it's some kind of something that can be stolen from them. So at that point I was like, well, let me put my numbers on there also. Let me put my income, let me put downloads, let me put reviews, let me put everything on there. And, um, that's where it went. So it's been, wow, 13, 14 months of, of, uh, developer logs now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, really great. I'm, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for anybody listening that wants to go check those out. Um, so going back to the very first version, and I want to talk to you because the development logs were fantastic because they talked a lot about pricing. And, and I think that's something that a lot of people think about or worry about in the app store. So you originally originally launched the app at $199. How did you choose that price? <laughs> you're gonna, uh, I, you're gonna think. Uh, I think you're assuming that I'm some kind of mastermind, but I chose that price uh, simply because it was two dollars. You know, one buck for me, one buck for Michael. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's so, valuable yeah, so, information. <laughs> so that was it. I was like, yeah, okay, one ninety nine. Sure, why not? Um, uh, and uh, so it was completely by accident. Of course, you know, Apple takes thirty percent right off the top before before we get our split. Um, but, um, yeah, I decided to put a 199, uh, st- strictly for that reason. We weren't, it, we were wondering if we would even get any downloads or if we would get any kind of uh, traction on iOS. We know we had it some kind of following on, on, um, on the web version and we expected that that following was developer heavy. So I think, you know, they would appreciate the game and would at least give us a hat tip for bringing it onto iOS so we put it as one ninety nine, um, but later on uh, I did started to think about pricing and uh, I dropped the price to to a dollar uh, about a month uh, about two months in, and uh, one interesting interesting thing happened. Uh, what basically happened was that there are, there are all these like syndication sites out there that look for, I guess apps and when they've dropped their price. So these syndication sites found the app. Saw that it went on sale. At that point, we actually had some like really good reviews on the app too, and um, I guess you know, just broadcasted it out to anyone that was subscribing to them, and we got a really high influx of downloads because of that. So um, it, at the end of the day, it ended up being more of a linear uh, distribution for me. If you if I rose uh, if I made the price if I doubled the price, I got half the downloads. So uh, it made more sense because of our uh, because it was a game, and there's really 
a lot of people that play games, we kept it at that dollar price. But that's I think that's one recommendation that I would make to uh, iOS developers if you decide to build an app is uh, definitely play around, play around with pricing. If you're going to make a premium app, go ahead and start it at a higher price because it gives you that option to drop it later. And um, you might find that your app is a niche and it may have some inelasticity built into it. Um, not necessarily the case for games, but... Uh, maybe for like other like productivity applications or or what have you, you might find that uh, even if you raise your price, people will still download it. Your downloads won't drop. I think that's so funny that there are robots out there that are just monitoring all app prices. And if there is a decrease like that, they're going to pull that up in their feed and make a post about it or share it with people. That That's so interesting. People love sales. Oh, they get a commission. Yeah, and they get a commission for it too. So um, I, I think they have like a, they basically have a partners uh, agreement with with Apple itself, and um, they get a small cut, you know, very small cut with regards to directing downloads to to the App Store. So it's in their best interest to to curate that kind of content and make it readily available um, uh, for for users. So AppleViz.com, which is which is a website specifically for the blind. Um, and iOS apps for the blind, they actually have a link on their site that says, if you want to uh, contribute to us or donate to us, use this link to buy your apps, and we'll get a small cut for that. So there's there's actually like that sub-market there that exists because of, uh, that, because of the syndication process. I had no idea Apple did that. This is all news to me. That's interesting. Just like an affiliate deal. Yeah. Huh. Yes, it's an affiliate program. Interesting. So I wanted to ask you, Version 1.0 of a dark room, it comes out and you get a message from an iPhone 5S user. Didn't work. What happened? Tell me a little bit about that and that experience. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, and that was that is not a good feeling. Uh, I think I, I still put that as one of the worst days of my life. You know, it's not a big deal. Once You, th- you know, I think about it and I think back to it. It really wasn't a big deal. Um, yeah, the app crashed. Uh, There's a couple of people that were, you know, out of the whopping 57 people that downloaded it the first week, you know, they might have been a little unhappy with, with that crash. But uh, I took it, you know, I took it hard, uh, I guess, primarily because, you know, I went on the sabbatical. I went on to learn all these new technologies. And uh, I I just messed up a compiler flag on on the deployment and um, didn't, didn't consider uh, 64-bit applications. So I was depending on a library that was only uh, valid for 32-bit compilations. And when I compiled the app out, uh, I didn't have an iPhone 5S at the time, or I didn't bother testing it on my wife's device. She has the 5S. And uh, the library works great on iPhone 5, but if you tried uh, running it on 5S, I got an error that says, hey, I can't find this uh, library, and then it would crash, crash the application. And it was just a stupid mistake that I made on my side. And, you know, I spent four months of my life developing this application and finally getting to a point where I'm releasing a product and seeing it fail right at the door was extremely painful. Um, so I, that, that, was a tough, that was a tough day for me. But, uh, you know, I collected myself. It gave me a reason to buy an iPad Air. You know, everyone, <laughs> all techies need a reason to buy new products. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, I drove to the Apple store, <laughs> bought an iPad Air because that was going to be my 64-bit device. Uh, fixed the issue, and I actually contacted Apple through iTunes Connect. And, you know, I told them, could you do an emergency release of my app? 
And uh, they, they obliged, and then, like, within 48 hours, they had a new build-out, and uh, everything was okay. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think, I, I think there, are, there may be some people out there that do product development, and uh, uh, I hope they can, they can relate to that, to that feeling. It's just, it's just not a good feeling. Oh, man. And I love, as much as it sucks to have an experience like that, I love hearing stories like that because I think that we've all had moments where we're so excited we released something and then just something goes wrong. I had that recently with an app that I just released a new version that had a little, the developer that I was working with uploaded a test version rather than the actual one. And I had to do an emergency release of it too. And it's just, it's so stressful. It's just... It really is, and it it happens. I mean, and fortunately for you, it didn't turn out to really. It, it happened the very beginning, so you still had the whole come up and popularity boon ahead of you. Right, right. And the the frustrating part is that every time I released after that, you know, I get the I get that anxiety. <laughs> Even though I know I didn't change that flag and I've tested it on all these devices, there's that anxiety that is like, what happened? What if, you know, what if I accidentally broke it again? But, um, yeah, it, you just, I guess, live and learn. And uh, it's it's a scar that will always be there, but you grow because of it. Mm-hmm. And it always makes me think, when we were talking about that nerves that you have, uh, I think MailChimp, which is the newsletter service, the free one that yes. exists out there. <laughs> They, yes, I use that all the time. <laughs> exactly. And they are so in tuned to that feeling. So anytime you're about to send the newsletter, they show like their little, the button that you're going to push to confirm it has a little quivering hand above it. And it's like, do you really want to yes, do this? Yes, it's like, like a liftoff button. Exactly. You're like, I don't know. Is something going to go wrong? This is it. And yeah, I, it's that feeling. And I think we all know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things you played around so, with, so that too, was pretty interesting. Yeah, one of the things you played around with, not just price, but you did a lot with promo codes when you were uh, giving out free versions or holding contests. At the beginning, it kind of felt more um, loose or uh, not loose, but not as structured. Was there anything you learned from that experience? Is there any specific way that you go about using your promo codes now with subsequent releases of the app? Yes, yes, definitely. So with regards to promo codes, um, especially if you're uh, building your app out there, uh, first find out who your audience is. Uh, like, I think my most successful place with regards to promo codes was actually Reddit. Um, there's a, re- a subreddit called App Hookup that uh, I got a lot of a lot of uh, good feedback from and just uh, good interactions from. And there was another one uh, called In- Incremental Games. So there's a subreddit devoted to idle games and i found a lot of success there so you know look on the net and find uh, find your community and they'll be the ones that help promote your app i think that's and connect with them and so they know you uh, essentially by name but what i found out with promo codes um, everyone else when they put their promo codes up there they would just post a link with hey, here's 10 codes enjoy and immediately those 10 codes would be taken up and then and that's it you know there was no conversation about it and, uh, you know, some people said thank you, and then that was the only interaction. Uh, what I ended up doing was uh, basically hold, quote-unquote, quasi-contests where I would say, where I would say, okay, if you want a promo code, um, here are the instructions. Okay, so to get a promo code, you have to read this blog entry or you have to read this media publication on a dark room, and then you have to write a comment about something that you read in the article that you found interesting or cool 
or whatever. It doesn't have to be like a full paragraph or anything, but just a couple of sentences that lets me know that you read it. And if you do that, then I'll send you a promo code. Well, it worked out really well because at that point, uh, other people that would vote up the thread simply because there were some good conversations there. And then, and then I started building a reputation to being just a, a genuine person, a real person, not just some, you know, nameless company. And, um, and then they themselves got some background with regards to the game. And so when they were playing it, they had that in the back of their mind, this, this point of engagement there. And I think that's so important. I think uh, people forget that you want to engage your end user or, you know, the gamer or the player or your customer, whoever it is. And that's something that's extremely important. So when giving out promo codes, the engagement aspect of it is is how you, how you want to uh, want to give those out. Don't just post them on Twitter, or if you do, you know, make sure you post them in such a way that it gets retweeted. Uh, don't just you know post it somewhere and leave. Engage with your end user because they will give you the time because you're giving them a promo code. Yeah, and I mean that makes sense. You're somebody that's actually participating in the community. You're proving that you're part of it rather than somebody who just wants to sell them something. Yeah, and there's so many people that are doing that. So when they finally see someone's like, hey, wow, he's actually making me go through a little bit of effort, but it was actually interesting and I enjoyed you know, this article or that thing, then they will take it upon themselves to maybe read some more or tell their friends. And they just remember it's a lot more stickier than just a random promo code for, for an app. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so similar to what you learned with promo codes, I kind of wanted to get your takeaways with dealing with the press because i know when you very first launched when you launched the very first version it wasn't like you built up to a big launch a bunch of stuff on launch day launch a bunch of press how did your dealings with the press evolve over time so um and initially uh the press never listened to me <laughs> right i think i i think i emailed a touch arcade which is a you know pretty big syndication um like um, at least three or four times with promo codes talking about here's the app here's the app take a look at it please take a look at it and of course you know it didn't happen until it actually hit the number one spot and then and then i got some attention from there so uh with regards to press i think the best thing that worked for me was actually twitter and interactions on twitter itself um the the good thing about the game originally was that it did go viral on the web so i actually had that nice funnel uh, already built up for me so anytime i searched for part of the url for for the web-based version of, game, of the game I immediately got some um, some good links that I could go through, and I and I swear I literally went through at least you know a thousand different Twitter handles looking at uh, what what was their follower ratio, you know, did they interact with people, what have you, and um, I would find specific people and I'd actually reply to them in the in the persona of the game. So instead of saying, "Oh, hey, I got an iOS version out," I'd basically just say, "Oh, I consume a part of your soul every time you stoke the fire," or uh, send the beast, kill all the villagers, you know, something ridiculous like that. But um, if they played the game, they would know that that, you know, came from the game or it would immediately connect with them. So I would start building these connections up and it, it didn't, it didn't, um, for example, one, one of the connections I, m- I made was w- actually with a, with a uh, editor or, a, 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 sorry, one of the connections I made was actually with an editor named uh, Leigh Alexander, and uh, she she had quite a you know couple thousand followers, and she never retweeted anything about a dark room. But I did have some genuine conversations with her online as the persona of a dark room, and 
after after I ran through you know a lot of my promo codes and my blog entries and nothing seemed to be working, I quote unquote sent her sent her a cold email. She knew me from you know from the Twitter interaction, so that really helped. And I was just genuine with her and told her, "Hey, I'm out of ideas. I've been trying to promote this app." You know about us. You've played it, and you. I hope you remember when I talked to you about it. But is there anything you can do to help me out? And she said, "Well, you know, I, I'm not going to promote your app, but I do want to empower you. And uh, let me send you over some interview questions, and you can you can answer them, and then I'll post them, and you know, I'll write about it. So if you go to uh, Gama Sutra, um, there's an article by Leigh Alexander about a darkroom and its journey from web to iOS. So it's it's important." in your initial in your initial interactions with the press is to build that personal connection with with people that personal genuine connection and then and then ask them it's okay to ask them for help um and um uh, one one important thing is how you craft emails i think that's something that i learned was that with regards to crafting crafting emails um make them short uh, put bold around those important things that you want them to read, and um, and put the promo codes in the email. Don't don't create the situation where it's like you send the email and say, "Oh, if you reply back, I'll give you a promo code." Just send them over, and uh, that that reduces that interaction that they have to they, that they have to perform. So bold emails give them a quick, you know, say please respond with either yes or no or maybe, and here's some promo codes. Go. And uh, I think that's that was really successful initially. And then when the game became popular, that's when I started getting a flood of emails came, coming in. And then at that point, I had to really think about and curate the ones that I wanted to respond to. It was really easy. The great thing is it's really easy to tell if they actually played the game or not. Because I'll get some emails where they'll ask for, oh, we would love to advertise in your game. And immediately I know that they haven't played it because they would have understand why I would never want to put ads inside of this game and then there will be other emails then that um that would pass that first test and then i would immediately respond and say yes i would love to do an interview or yes i'd love to be on on your podcast <laughs> <laughs> there you go so um so i think that that was really important and um and uh, just just something to think about too so just be genuine and then don't be stingy with your promo codes and build those relationships uh, you got one chance, pretty much one chance to cash in that good goodwill that you've built up. And um, when it happens, you know, thank them and uh, hopefully it works in your favor. Yeah. And I love that you interacted with people from the persona of a dark room, because if you're actually part of the dark room, you're not going to be like selling something. It's not like, hey, download my app. So it doesn't come off as like being salesy or sleazy it's just kind of like you find somebody who has mentioned the game so they obviously are aware of it probably have played it and you're just interacting with them and especially for members of the press and media that's what they tell you to do is before you try to pitch anyone you try to build those relationships and that that's exactly what you were doing yeah, and you know, it, it, and the great thing is that even if you, even if they had five followers, I would still interact with them, um, and you know, have an inter- had have that kind of that kind of exchange, and then they would they would uh, end up uh, endorsing me in some way, right? Uh, they would they would reach out to the big guys and say, hey, have you heard about this game? And then I would reply to that that tweet, and then get that additional interaction happening. Mm-hmm. So. Um, all the, all that stuff is very very good very good to do. Yeah, and you're getting you're getting one user one potential buyer at a time. You're working for it. 
Yeah, it is definitely a lot of work. Uh, you know, definitely January and February were pretty much, uh, I spent 20 hours a week uh, just, you know, doing things like that, trying to figure out different ways to interact with people. And uh, it's work. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So to go over the history of this rise of this app that you released, there was no launch for it. I think the first few days you had like five downloads each, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to the very top of the app store, which is fantastic. But before you got to the top of the US, you you found some popularity in the UK. And the striking thing to me is the reviews and the people interacting with them, it was so strikingly different. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, so when when it went viral, first of all, when it went viral in the UK, I have I still can't connect all the dots. I don't know why it suddenly went viral in the UK. You know, I can only imagine why. Uh, there were a couple of publications, you know, that were UK based initially, but they were three four months ago, uh, uh, from three month three four months from the day that it actually went viral. So I just uh, I have no idea what happened there, and. It, and it happened over two days. Like literally, I was the 500th app, and then suddenly I was number one in a two-day period. And uh, immediately, uh, I was I was happy. But immediately, I started getting one-star reviews uh, for the application. They thought I was scamming the app store. Um, I can actually read you one of the reviews. It's actually pretty interesting. Uh, so the title of the review is "Fraudsters." And uh, the body is, the game is awful. All the reviews are fake. The people behind this have broken the law as this is clearly fraudulent activity designed to get you to part with your money for false promises. Absolute disgrace, pure theft, pure criminality. And that was literally a review that uh, was posted to the App Store. And I I was in shock when that happened. Um, And of course, you know, being a product developer, uh, that's your baby, right? So you feel really bad when those uh, one-star reviews start coming in. You just got this huge target on your back. Um, Another interesting thing that happened was that I think a herd mentality started forming. So uh, an interesting thing about reviews, reviews are sorted by the number of stars and then length. So if you get a five-star review that's really short, it'll show up at the top until there's a one-star review that's really long. And then that will that will actually end up showing up at the top of the app store. Interesting. So, so, um, so there is quite a bit of weight applied to the star rating, but then at some threshold, the length uh, starts trumping, uh, trumping that weight, and that's why you'll see like four star reviews that are longer show up above five star reviews that are shorter. So what happened was that all these one star reviews that were fairly long ended up showing up at the top of the app store in the UK. And then this herd mentality started forming where people would download the app and, you know, feel uh, they would have read the reviews, downloaded the app anyways, and then not given much time and have those reviews in their back of their head and then post another bad review. So there was an onslaught of bad reviews. And for those that took the time to beat the game, there was definitely at least a 72-hour delay for when they would post their five-star review. So uh, it was it was really really a um, a interesting uh, time during that period. Um, another interesting thing about reviews is that the only way the best way to battle bad uh, bad reviews is to release a new version of your application because once you do that, all the old reviews get archived and uh, you get a new uh, a clean slate. It's double it's a double edged sword though because if you're in the top of the app store and you have a lot of really good reviews. You're, you don't want to release a new version because then you lose all your good reviews. Huh. So uh, it's it's a tricky balancing act uh, that you have to that you have to work with. But 
there's some there's some insight on the review on the review process. Yeah, now the reviews are really intriguing to me, and I know this is pure speculation. I wonder if in the UK there had been more of a trend at the beginning of higher reviews, if that would have pushed even more downloads. I mean, I would assume that it would. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it was like a cultural thing with regards to gaming. Um, I don't know. It's a smaller market also, so that maybe they're more susceptible to fraudulent applications making it to the top. So um, that is definitely a possibility, but uh, I, I really don't... Um, I really don't know why the reviews were so negative in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got me scared in the U.S. market when it started climbing in the U.S. market. I was afraid that when it hit the number one spot, I was going to get this onslaught of really bad reviews. Uh, luckily, that wasn't the case. But, man, <laughs> that, that, that gave me a little bit of heartburn, too. Yeah, it's so interesting that it didn't happen for the U.S., but it did for the U.K. And, I yeah. mean, this onslaught of people being afraid of scam apps, that reminds me of, like, any other app store like Android and especially Windows Phone, oh gosh, it's just like yeah. majority scam apps. Say there's something that's popular, and then uh, I think you posted a link to a dark room in the Windows Store that wasn't even the game. <laughs> it was it, just a list of like songs that contained the word dark or something. It was it was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's um, crazy, and that's what you would expect. And you're reading these reviews in the app Apple Store, and you're like, wait, which app store are you in? Are you do you think you're on a Windows <laughs> Phone? Yeah, it was it was very weird. It was it was extremely extremely weird when that happened. But you know, in 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 I tried to exercise at least as much empathy as I could with regards to you know the reviews that I saw. You know, I understand that there are a lot of bad apps out there, and you just it's really hard to give money for something that you don't know. You know what it is, and um, and. So I can appreciate that part of it is that they're not only giving you a dollar, they're they're also giving you a piece of their trust, right? They're trusting the app store, they're trusting the publisher, they're trusting the curation process, all those things are happening. So even though they're giving a, me- a measly dollar, um, they're giving a lot of that trust and then when that's betrayed, they feel really angry because of that. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you see the knee-jerk uh, one-star reviews that come out the other end. Mm-hmm. So... I kind of want to wrap this up by asking, mm-hmm. you had the rise to the top of the App Store, and then obviously that can't last forever. I know right. you wrote about another rise that you had playing with download numbers and pricing. Where do you see this going forward? It, how much like more coding work do you have planned? Are there updates that you have? Is it more of like a you have a product, so going forward is just like marketing and seeing where that is? Or what, what's your future plans for this application so there's um i have to do ios updates um it turns out that i'm using like a deprecated api and uh, i'm doing some uh poor poor memory management in the specific parts of the app so there will be ios updates that will come out for the application there's a little bit of upkeep there um i actually released a prequel uh to a darkroom it's called the ensign and that released uh, a week ago and um, it it's doing really well now too. It, I think it's like number fourteen under the uh, under the top downloads under ga- under the games category. So um, so it it's almost like it's becoming a quote unquote franchise. I would I hate to use that word, but um, but there was parts of the storyline that I really wanted to explore, and that's why I created this prequel to to explore those parts of the storyline and explore those parts of the world. Uh, so as far as the these two apps themselves. After the initial development, I think it's just very, very minimal upkeep. 
um, with the expectation that they'll eventually be forgotten. And uh, that's the unfortunate aspect of creating creating these apps. Uh, if you don't have a huge marketing budget, um, you really do rely on word of mouth and uh, you do what you can with regards to, you know, pricing and making a free occasionally and giving out promo codes, but you're at the whim of of a very fickle fickle market and uh you just have to go in with that with that uh, mentality and and uh accept that you may have bought yourself a few months or you know some good capital but um it's not going to last and uh it, it was tough to accept that at first but it's just the nature of the situation mm-hmm. yeah one of the things that struck me is every time you got written about in a blog post especially at the beginning you were hopeful that it would just go up and then stay there and it was always the spikes and yeah that's that's really how it is that's it yeah and even from number one and one important thing is that when i hit the number one spot i was like okay i know i'm going to drop eventually from the number one spot but i have to level out at a higher rate right the the leveling out or the point I level out should be at least higher than I originally was before. But by the time I leveled out, I was at I was at levels before it even went viral in the UK. So you will be forget, forgotten about very quickly, unfortunately. Interesting. Awesome. And you can't really expect on some kind of long tail um, uh, long tail revenue stream. Mm. I, well, this has been Amir. This has been amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show like this. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. If anybody wants to find you or find a dark room, where would you tell them to go? So amirrajan.net is my uh, blog, and it's got all my contact information. I'm more than happy to you know answer any emails. I also use I actually use Mailchimp. So if you actually go on the blog and look at the a dark room write up, you can subscribe to Mailchimp, and then a darkroomios.com is the official website for the game itself. Awesome. And again, this is Dan. It is novicenolonger.com. And if you go there, you can find all the show notes, other episodes, and all of that fun stuff. So, Amir, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. We have reached the end of another episode. And if you are still listening, I just want to say thank you. You guys that are listening right now, you are what make this podcast what it is. This podcast wouldn't exist without listeners, without you guys. And so thank you for being here. And if you have enjoyed this, I'm going to ask you, go on iTunes, leave a review. That helps me out so much, and I might read it on the air. And tell your friends. Share it on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, Go to the show notes on my website, novicenolonger.com. There's a link to just quickly share it on Twitter. You can change the text. You can do whatever you want. And those are the things that really help me out. And so I'm going to conclude this episode the same way that I've been concluding other episodes in the past, and that is with a challenge. Because I know that if you're listening to this, you are an app developer or you are an aspiring app developer. And in order to be an app developer and continue being an app developer, you got to continue making and releasing apps. But sometimes it's so easy to get distracted and to lose that motivation. And so what I want you to do is make that one next step, the thing that you need to do, the thing that you've been putting off, whatever that is. It could be sketching out a screen, could be contacting somebody, whatever it is for you, I want you to do that, even if it's just one action. And Just like last week, we're going to use this podcast as a way to denote if you've been doing that work. And so if you're listening to this, if you've accomplished your goal, great. If you you haven't, ask yourself why not and try to make next week different. And together, we are going to create your app. Have a good one.